0: Many of us are hearing about what's going on up in Washington, D.C., about the March for Life rallies. And we are praying for our brothers and sisters on the front lines of human life. This weekend marks, and this month actually marks Pro-Life Month. And this weekend commemorates the 49th anniversary of the Roe v Wade decision. I'm going to be giving you a defense on why I believe life is beginning in the womb from the point of conception. So with that, this is probably one of the most toughest subjects that I ever speak on, but I am proud to say that I am pro-life. I am the father of a daughter that was born at 28 weeks three days' gestation. That child was a human life from the time of conception, and she is thriving now. My name is Rob Lundberg, and you are listening to the Let's Get Real. are listening to the Let's Get Real podcast, kind of a sobering opening, but I do want to let you know that I am unashamedly pro-life. My daughter was born at two pounds, three and a half ounces, 14 three-quarter inches, at 28 weeks gestation. At the time that she was conceived, she was a human life. You know, we are marking the anniversary of what is known to be the anniversary of Roe v. Wade. Now, I want to read for you a quote as we get this episode launched. And it goes like this. This is Norma McCorby, the AKA of the Roe v. Wade case, Jane Roe. There is no real Jane Roe, uh, so to speak. It's like John Doe. But nevertheless, what you have is uh, a pseudonym And the name is the late Norma McCorvey. She said this, it's from a mainstream media watchdog that said this. Back in 1973, I was very confused, a very confused 21 year old with one child and facing an unplanned pregnancy. She says in the ad At the time, I fought to obtain a legal abortion, but truth be told, I have three daughters and never had an abortion. I think it is safe to say, and this is probably the the clenched fist and with the with the uh, brass knuckles in it. She says, "I think it's safe to say that the entire abortion industry is based on a lie. I am dedicated to spending the rest of my life undoing the law that bears my." name. And indeed, she did do that up to her dying day. Her name is Norma McCorvey. And what I want to do in this episode today is give you a defense of why I believe life begins at the womb. Before I do that, I just want to give you an update you know that the Supreme Court has started deliberating and making decisions, and of course after the Supreme Court decision in December, it was determined that the providers challenged the law could proceed against some of the state licensing officials, and the justice left the law in the place of litigation continued. And they are sending it back to the Fifth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, which recently sent the case to the Texas Supreme Court, a decision that will likely add months to the legal proceedings. But I really believe the way that this court case is going is that we very well could see a different kind of war going on. Instead of the war for having an abortion, We may be seeing the war in the courts as far as trying to regain the right because we very well in our lifetime could see Roe v. Wade overturned. Now, that would be determined by the states. I understand that. And I know that the liberal left is going bananas right now. But, you know, I've got a blog posting on this, and all the years that I have been blogging, this is one of the ones that's kind of an anniversary uh, issue that we do bring up particularly. I am one who believes that in the sacredness of the sanctity of human life in the womb, and actually I go from womb to tomb, and I have written a paper in grad school with regards to the very subject of the sanctity of human life from womb to tomb, I do believe that as well. So what I have gone and done over the years is I've gone and argued this case in converse, not contentiously, but contendingly, there's a difference. You know, some pastors go and say that, you know, we need to contend for the faith, but they go and they say that, you know, we can't, contend in certain areas. And there's certain things that we don't contend on. We don't don't contend on meaningless genealogies and things like that as Paul wrote to Timothy on or to Titus on. But I do want to let you know that we are called to defend the faith and we are called to contend for human life in the womb. Now, like I said, I am a staunch believer of sacredness of the sanctity of human life from womb to tomb. I did write a paper in grad school, and I've had many, many kitchen table talk type conversations in the academic arena, as well as as a staffer at um, at the local with a staffer at the local college also in the medical arena when I was going and working in upstate New York. So the approach that I want to take to this subject is basically that type. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to start from science, and then I'm going to move to ethics. And I'm going to move to the ethical issue behind this subject. Now, please note that all throughout this, will address the sacredness of human life, and it will support the sacred text of the Bible, Old Testament New Testament. And with this being such an important issue, I am guessing that this episode will probably get some, uh, some static, if you will, if you have a question and you're listening to this, um, and you want to ask questions. I want to start right out and say that you can email me at roblundberg315 at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you and discuss this with you, and maybe even in Google Chat, we can kick this around as well. But this is a very important issue, and this is going to probably want to be one of our longer episodes. I'm not sure how long we're going to go, but nevertheless, it's not important because this issue is of utmost importance. But as far as this issue is concerned, I want to let you know that this is a very important issue. And, and, uh, you know, you'll read about that on my blog post, if you will. I'll link that post uh, in the Episode in the episode posting as well. I only ask that if you are one that holds to a pro-choice view, I ask that you indulge me in this case to see if there is a loophole that you can make your case and tell me where I am wrong. Now, I want to let you know that this is going to be an intelligent case. This is not going to be an, that, uh, uh, an emotional case. But I think that when we look at the science and we can go and see some of this stuff, we're going to start from science to show how science actually defends this. Now, it is often said that science does not say anything, but scientists do. And I believe that wholeheartedly. I agree with this statement, but what you and I will see in, 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 in the part of this Presentation here is what the scientific evidence cannot be avoided. the, the scientific evidence that cannot be a, a avoided, no matter one's worldview. And the end game here that we are going to be seeing in the cultural in the culture is a cross between a matter of personal convenience and selfishness as a result of one's personal promiscuity and financial gain from the abortion industry in spite of the reality of the matter. Now, in order to start this whole issue, you know, this whole debate, two people need to come together physically and have a conception that has to take place. And when conception happens, there is DNA, You have the DNA of the man, and you have the DNA of the woman. Now, the question is whether or not that which is created from the physical union has DNA of its own. Now, my position on this is that that which has been conceived now has its own DNA. And I'll give you more on that in just a moment. It is a scientific fact through the wonderful world of embryology, that when conception begins or happens, the fertilized egg, by design, essentially sets up shop on the uterine wall of the mother for the next 10 months. And at the same time, that fertilized egg has the DNA of both parents combined as its own DNA. And there are several key characteristics which fall into what biology and physiology textbooks would consider to be a life system. So, if you have the DNA of dogs, uh, Mama Doggy and daddy doggy, or a mama kitty, and daddy kitty, and they come together, they copulate, conception happens, you get a litter of kitties, a litter of puppies, there's the DNA, and you get the characteristics of that, and those are life systems from the time of conception. Why is it that we don't deal with this from a human perspective? Now, what are those characteristics that I want to talk to you about? Now, number one, there are seven of them. I believe I've got seven. Yes, I've got actually eight of them. And what we have first and foremost is that living things, first and foremost, are composed of cells. A single-celled organism has everything it needs to be self-sufficient, and in multicellular organisms, specialization increases until some cells do only certain things. Number two, living things are organized at different levels of organization. Now, Let me explain this. When we look at living things, we see that they must be able to organize simple substances into complex ones. In fact, there is an atomic, molecular, and cellular organization that is found in all living things. When it comes to cell organization, we see structure from several levels, from the very smallest building block, to the more complex. Now let let me give you a list of you know things under this second point. First, a cell is the smallest unit of life, subcellular organization has been skipped here. To be a little more candid here, did you know that the male that the male contributes a lot? One sperm cell has 37.5 thousand or megabytes of DNA information on it. The cell is the smallest building block of life, but no matter what kind of cell one is talking about, it is packed with information. If there is information, it must come from somewhere or someone. Okay, number two is that you have tissue and tissue comprises of uh, of groups of cells or a group of cells that perform a certain function or common function organs are groups of tissues that perform common functions which means that organs work in conjunction with other organs known as an organ system which comprises of a group of organs that perform a common function. Many of us have heard of the term organism, which is a complete living thing or living entity. To get a little bit more detailed here, organisms also organized at several higher levels like populations, communities, and ecosystems. Now, we've gone through those some things there that's under the second point let's move to the third point that living things also have heredity now the question is whether or not that which has been created from the physical union has dna of its own and it's not just this but dna is the molecule molecule let me say that this very very succinctly dna is the molecule of heredity As I mentioned, as I started this out, that when conception happens, we have the combining of the DNA of the man and the DNA of the woman. Now, when you bring two human beings together, we must posit that that which has been created from the union is a pre-born, watch this now, person. Now, the question that we see going on in the government today is whether or not you got personhood. That's the argument. It's not going and saying, um, uh, uh, you know, is it a human life? You know, some people go and saying, well, it is a human life. Now, the question is whether or not it's a person. Well, DNA determines personhood. DNA determines personhood. Number four, living things have what is called metabolism. Metabolism is the set of life-sustaining chemical reactions in organisms. So when it comes to living organisms, living things take in energy, they take in light, they take in food, etc. for the maintenance and growth. Living things do what they do by using metabolism. Some of ours metabolism is faster when we're younger and some of it's getting slower as we get older. But nevertheless, they use metabolism, which are chemical reactions of life. And metabolism allows living things to respond to their environment. So that's number four. Number five. Living things also have homeostasis. Now, what in the world is homeostasis? Homeostasis is the state of steady internal physical and chemical conditions maintained by living systems. So when you have a living system or living thing, living things are able to make changes to keep their internal environment within a certain narrow range. Did you know that when you shiver, it is, an, it is a designed example of homeostasis to keep the body warm? When you shiver, you are trying to keep your body warm. That is an example of grown-up or, or mature person homeostasis. Number six, living things grow. Living things display growth in utero. Through What is known as cell division, which is an orderly formation of new cells. Living things display growth by cell enlargement to a certain size and then it divides. An organism gets larger as the number of its cells increase. Number seven, living things reproduce using DNA. You have the whole idea of the potential for reproduction. Reproduction is the essential for survival of a species. Now, when parents reproduce, the child grows in utero and ex-utero and through the maturation process. All living things reproduce in one of the following ways. Asexual reproduction, which is the production of an offspring without the use of gametes. Um, then you have there is the most common approach of sexual production or reproduction, which is the producing of an offspring by the joining of sexual cells. And number eight, living things adapt and evolve, if you will, in a micro sense, not in a macro sense. Three distribution of mutations of genes, genetics, a la Gregor Mendel, Punnett Squares, if you remember that from 10th grade biology. This is the type of thing that we're talking about here. Living things adapt or micro-evolve in response to their uh, their environment. Now, adaptation is often misused by macro-evolutionists, but adaptation is something that we do every day, no matter where we live or where we move to. Okay? Adaptations are traits in giving an organism an advantage in a certain environment, and we do this all the time. We adapt over over stressful situations, passive stress situations. We adapt. And variation of individuals is important for a healthy species. Without it, a species cannot adapt. So just looking at these eight things, you can see the science behind a life system. Now, let's look at the moral, ethical aspect of this or what I call the morning-after worldview which addresses the life question. We've talked about the science. We've talked about the science from the fact that there are certain things with regards to living things being composed of cells and different levels of organization. We talked about cell and tissue and the whole idea of metabolism and heredity and homeostasis and and the fact of growth and opportunity to reproduce, produce through the DNA and then also um, adapting to the environment. You see all of this in the womb. And you can also see... Um, when you see camera videos of um, an abortion taking place, how the baby in the womb during an abortion shows pain. Like I said, this is going to be a long, longer podcast, so bear with us, okay? So let's talk about the morning-after worldview here. And part of my argument here is the fact that probably, this is probably the mo- most potent of my argument. And the reason is because it addresses the question based on laying a groundwork from science as a starting point. then what is that question? And the question is this. At the time of the termination of the pregnancy, is that which is in the womb a human life? Science tells us yes. Now, the scenario of a breathing, of breathing, the first breath is defined by life. There are some folks that actually believe this. Now, some will say, that there is a heartbeat, if it's a heartbeat, is life. Others will say that when a child is born, it is not a person unless it breathes its first breath. The first part of this is rather obvious, though it commits what is called the genetic fallacy, which argues from the source—a faulty argument at that—based on the first part of this. Uh, this first part of this scientific uh, approaches here. Now, this in the second part. Let me respond to this first breath position, which is in question. If that which is born is not a person until the first breath, what is it before it breathed that first breath? What was it before it was delivered? If that which was born has all the characteristics of a human life based on good science, then this objection of the first breath begs the question. It totally begs the question. Number two, the scenario of a series of outcomes to this question here with regards to at the time of the termination of the pregnancy and the question of whether or not being a human life, I I use this in starting a, a... asking a person a question with regards to, is it morally wrong to harm an innocent human life? And of course, we know that that which is in the womb is innocent. We understand that through science that it is a human life. Uh, and I'd like to like you to debate me on this, by the way. And so the next question here that, that, that follows is, is that at the time of the termination of the pregnancy, is it a human life? And if we say yes then the question comes is, why are we destroying that life? If the answer to the, if the t- at the time of the pregnancy, is, is that a human life, is, is no, folks, let's not use junk science. Let's use uh, observable, measurable, repeatable methodology to determine what that which is in the womb is before you go and throw it away. And then if you say, I don't know, how many other decisions, moral choices, are you willing to make based on what I call an agnostic platform of I don't know? Now, I've had numerous people respond to these questions in rather nefarious ways. A, fish, a physician whom I was speaking with during the afterglow time after a baby was delivered in the emergency room, room stated that's too deep for me after another staffer at a local college stated that she had never considered those options and in many cases people do not consider them until after the fact in many cases so here we have two approaches we've got the scientific and we've got the ethical now let's wrap this up by going and saying what does god say well i call this the theological approach We could just go and say, you know, we'll just take the theological approach as Christians and expect the pro-choice to expect it. What I'm doing here, folks, is I'm giving you an argument for how to handle somebody who will not accept your Bible and then bringing them to the Bible. Now, the theological angle, the question is, what does God have to say? The title, um, you know, is a matter of what is called sanctity. Sanctity is from the Latin word sanctus, which means set apart or holy. Uh, we also see this in the Greek text of the New Testament where the word is hagios, meaning set apart, holy, means the same thing, it's sanctity. Now when we say sanctity of human life, we're saying that life is sacred. Uh, and it isn't just sacred from the womb, it is also from womb to tomb. And I believe that this is because God has said it that way. And I mean, when I talk about God, I'm talking about one who is spaceless, timeless, immaterial, uncaused, the first cause of the universe who said in the very book of beginnings or Genesis, let there be light, and bang, there was uh, you know, an explosion thanks to the Hubble telescope tracing it all the way back. I believe this God is the God of the Bible, and he caused it to set it that way. And when we say God, I am talking about one who is spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, moral, personal, intelligent, sustainer, creator, and first cause. This is basically the God of the Bible. And these attributes all reflect the God of the Christian scriptures. So how does that God look at life? I wanted to make sure I got all those attributes. Well, how does God look at life? Well, he looks at it, number one, since he's the beginner of human life by creating the first human being. In Genesis 2, verse 7, we read that the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Number two, God created us in his own image and his likeness, soulishly speaking, having attributes that reflect his nature on a semi-transcendent scale. All we need to do is read Genesis 1.27. And it said, God created man in his own image, in his likeness he created the male and female he created them. Number three, God considers the blood of humanity sacred. Genesis 4, we have the story of Cain and Abel, where the incident where Cain kills his brother. And God asks a question. He says, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And in Genesis 4:15 we read, so the Lord said to him, therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain so that no one finding him would slay him. This later would come forth as one of the last six of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, 20, verse 13, where it says, You shall not murder. Number four, God has created and designed us as his masterpiece in creation right from the womb. In, In Psalm 139, verses 13 to 16, we read David's words, For you form me in my inward parts, you wove you wove me in my mother's womb, and I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret. The skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth, your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and your book were all and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me. When as yet, there was not one of them. Number five, and lastly here, God considers life so sacred that he has set a judgment for those who play God in taking a personal human life. One of the six things that the Lord hates, we read in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 17, is the whole idea of the shedding of innocent blood. And that was established from the very beginning of the book of Genesis, where God responds to the killing of Abel later by saying, "Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for the image of God." He, for in the image of God He made man. That's Genesis 9:6. So we've talked about science, we've talked about the ethical issue, and we've talked about the theological issue. Let's wrap all this up. Now I am sure that more could be stated from this subject. And of course, we know that there are things that are going on in in DC and that there are decisions that are going to be made, but I wanna let you know that if you are pro-life and you are listening to this, please forward this to as many people as you can to encourage them, to support them, to help them debate the case and they can contact me at roblundberg at gmail.com. But again, like I said, I'm sure that a lot more could be stated from this on this subject. And as one who believes in the sanctity or sacredness of human life, I believe that what we are seeing in our culture today is a holocaust of 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 uh, uh, it's a holocaust of the preborn. Let's call it what it is all because of convenience, all because of liberality of one, of what one does with their body. But what I have presented here, I think, is a strong three-pronged defense from science, ethics, and theology that life in the womb is just that. It is a human life from the point of conception. Now, I've been presenting this argument in conversational form for the last 20 plus years in the medical community and arena and the conversations of students at the local college university. Science is on the side of life, ethics is on the side of life, and lastly, God is on the side of life because he is the giver of life. So let me ask you a question. What side are you on? You might be thinking, well, is it morally wrong to harm a person? Is that person a human life? That's the question you have to ask and, and that you have to answer. At the time of the termination of the pregnancy, is that which is in the womb a human life? These are the questions before us, and how will, they, how will we answer them? Please know that if you are listening to this and you are one who has had an abortion, I want to let you know that I am not judging you on that decision I am not your judge. The God who created you is your judge. But I want to let you know that he loves you. And he's willing to forgive you. God is willing to forgive you because abortion is a sin of murder. And whether it is outward murder or inward murder of us creating murder from our heart, we are all murderers. All of us have lied. All of us have committed adultery, whether it be physical or uh, emotional or in our minds. But I want to let you know that there's forgiveness. But folks, we are guilty before a God who is holy. And I want to let you know that we stand guilty. We stand, as as I like to say, folks, we are toast because what we deserve is spiritual death and not just physical death. We are going to physically die one day, but we're going to stand before God. And the question is, what is it going to take for you to hear, well done, good and faithful servant? What is it that, that you makes you think that you're going to heaven? Well, let me tell you this, that each and every one of us are guilty. And the reason is, is because God created everything perfect. Perfect. But we mess it up as human beings. But Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, came, died, and rose again. Came in order to restore you and I to good fellowship and relationship with God. By trusting Jesus as Lord and Savior. You know, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrated his love toward us that while we were still sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be saved from self, from sin from selfishness, and that you can have that personal relationship with God. Please know that we love you and we are sharing the truth with you. We're not looking to be judgmental. And if you do have any questions, if you do suffer from guilt, the remedy for guilt is forgiveness. That if we confess our sins, God is faithful and he is just and he will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Every one of us have guilt that we struggle with. Every one of us, including myself. But isn't it good to know that the remedy is forgiveness? I want you to know that forgiveness today. I want you to know that forgiveness. And if you have received Jesus Christ as a result of listening to this podcast episode, please let us know. Let somebody know so that we can help you with resources to get you on track and growing in your faith. Again, this is Rob Lundberg from the Let's Get Real podcast. You've been listening to my defense of sanctity of human life. As you go out this week, if you go and get involved in the coffee shop conversations or the kitchen table talk of of work and everything, or you hear somebody talking or complaining about some of the things that are going on in D.C. as far as judicial cases. And perhaps this one here. You have now some ammunition to be able to go and share with somebody. Please share this episode. Please share uh, this, this, this episode particularly and let them know about the Let's Get Real podcast with Rob Lundberg. And I want to thank you in advance if you do that. So, until next week, this is Rob Lundberg from the let's Get real podcast as uh, you as you go out, be heavy the ears of the German shepherd and listen for those opportunities to to share the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel. The gospel is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures he was buried and he rose on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to the twelve, and then of course the apostle paul and In 1 Corinthians 15, the first four verses and following, he gives a list of those, and he speaks of himself. He's in and then he appeared to me as one untimely born. He saved me. If you don't know him, he can save you. So as you go out this week, go out and give them heaven, and we'll be back with you next week. Lord bless.